Well, good morning. Glad to see that you were able to make it out this morning, and hopefully no one had to utilize alternate means of travel to get here. Uh, as I made my way to, to Indy yesterday, I, I for legitimately thought we were going to get rained into Seymour, driving down the river that was 6th Street over here. It is crazy how much rain we've got, but it is good to have you here with us this morning, and I trust that God has truth for us today that he'll speak to us in these next moments. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him just that, that he would speak to us today. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace in our lives. I thank you that it is your desire to be involved in our lives, to move in and through us, Lord, to speak to us, to guide us into a future that you have for us. Lord, I pray today as we look at your truth, as we listen to your word, as it's preached, Lord, that, that you would, as the song says, open our eyes, that you would illumine our hearts, Lord, that we might hear and receive the truth you have, and that we might be mobilized to move into the future that you would have us help you create. In Jesus' name, amen. I once heard a story, and I, I worked hard to try to actually find the story to, to make sure it was the right baseball player, but I couldn't find it. I believe it was about Hank Aaron. If you don't know who Hank Aaron is, he's known as Hammer and Hank. He was arguably one of the greatest hitters to ever play the game. During his professional career, he had 3,771 hits and 775 home runs. As the story goes, one, one time uh, someone was speaking with him and asked him, Hank, how is it that you are able to hit the ball so regularly so far? What, what is it that you're doing that allows you to make such solid contact and so consistently send the ball off into the outfield? And Hank looked at the, the man that asked the question and said, well, it's easy. I just watch the laces. Think, think about that for a second, how insane that is. A baseball, which even in those days is moving in and around towards the, the, the home plate, right? The ball, ball doesn't just come straight. The ball's spinning consistently as it moves in. It, and sometimes it drops down or it rises up or it cuts to the side. That ball that's coming from so many feet away at such a fast pace, Hank Aaron, when asked how he was able to make such consistent contact and so consistently hit the ball in, into the, the outfield, when asked what he did, his answer was, I watch the laces. What, what kind of eyes does that man have to have? That, that you can, I mean, I, I struggle. My brother, when we, were, when we were in high school, my brother could throw 80-plus mile an hour fastball. And playing catcher, knowing where he was going to throw the ball, it was difficult for me sometimes just to see the ball, let alone to be so attuned to the movement of the ball and, and for my eyes to be so locked in that I could watch laces. It, it, is, it is incredible that he was able to see things. like. But it's all about vision, right? He could do what few people... Hey, Nathan, your microphone's on, buddy. Won't let me go do anything. <laughs> I hear him up here on the, the stage talking. He could do, but back to the story about Hank. He could do what few people could do because he could see what few people could see. He could do what few people could do because he could see what few could see. I've been thinking about that this week as I consider the life of Nehemiah. 
And I find that to be true in many different areas of life, isn't it? That, that often what we are capable of doing and what we are willing to engage in or move into depends on what we are able to, do, to see. Sometimes that is physically with our eyes. That, that what we are physically able to see in front of us dictates and determines what we are willing or able to do. Sometimes, though, it goes deeper. It's in our, in our heads and in our hearts. The things that we are able to picture, the, the future that we're able to see in front of us, the, the outcome of various activities, the way that we're able to, in our, our minds, I picture what's in front of us determines where we're willing to go and what we're willing and able to do. I would say, in fact, that more often than not, it isn't our physical eyes that determine our ability and action, but it is often what we anticipate in our mind's eye that either determines or limits our motion in the world. What do we believe to be true? What do we believe to be possible? What do we believe the future holds for us? And what we can see will have a direct impact on what we can and will do. We see this concept of vision and what people see and how it drives things forward in the book of Nehemiah. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open to Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 11. Nehemiah 2, 11, and we're going to go through the end of this chapter. Nehemiah 2, 11 through 20 says this, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the, the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up. By the, up the valley by night, examining all the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who could be doing the work. Then I said to them, you, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this they're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim to the historic right to it. So we see this continuation of, of this story of Nehemiah. He, he has begun by hearing the truth of the walls and, and he moves into a time of prayer asking for four months that God would move, that God would give him the right time and the right place to step into what God has for him. He finally steps in and he asks the king for permission to go. And the king, through the hand of God, provides above and beyond what he even asks for. 
And now we see Nehemiah finally making his way to Jerusalem. And what we see from the outset is that vision starts in the heart. That Nehemiah's action is not, on, is not based upon anything that he physically sees. Understand that to this point, more than likely, scholars believe Nehemiah probably hadn't ever set foot in Jerusalem. Everything that he knew about the city was based upon things that, that others had told him, stories that had been passed down, as a, as a matter of fact, for, for hundreds of years, that these, these stories had come to him through, through family members. He, he has never been to the city. Secondarily, he ha- not only has he never been to the city at all, he hasn't seen, because he's not been there, the reality of what they're facing, and he doesn't know what the potential is. It says in verse, 11, verse 12 that he'd not told anyone what God had put in his heart to do for Jerusalem. What, what he was able to see with his physical eyes what was tertiary compared to the truth that God had placed in his heart. He has a vision in his heart. He has a vision of what needs to be done and what he wants to accomplish in Jerusalem. And his actions are completely contingent upon that truth. His his willingness to move is not based on what his physical eyes can see or what he understands to be true because of, of his cognitive abilities, but based upon what God has told him. We struggle with that in our modern society. If we can't touch it, taste it, smell it, hear it, then we don't really believe that it's true. We want proof that it can be done. We want proof that it exists. We want proof that we'll be successful. But so often, as you look throughout scriptures, how many times are the people of God called to move into the future trusting that God will do whatever has been said? How, how often do, do they have to move with limited resources? How often do the people of God move into a territory knowing there's impression, oppression that's going to surely be there, but understanding that God has told them to go there and that he will bring away? It, so often, the people of God move based on faith, not upon sight. Nehemiah, in this passage, is being driven by vision. Now, vision, if we look it up, is defined as the act or power of sensing with the eyes or the act or power of anticipating that which will come to be. If we take it a step further, I would say that vision is a burning conviction in one's heart about what could and should come to be based on revealed truth. That doesn't mean we have to see it. It, it means that God, either through his word or, or through through our, our, our hearts and him speaking to our hearts has revealed to us that this is what we need to do. This is where he wants to go. And there is, there's something inside of us that just won't let us go. Something that compels us to move even though the odds don't seem to be in our favor. Something that compels us to act that, that goes beyond our physical understanding. Nehemiah first heard about the state of the city in Nehemiah 1.3, he'd heard about the great disgrace and distress the people of God and the city of God was in. He knew the promises God had given to his people. And he acted in order to bring that vision to life. You know what the truth is? That Nehemiah was crazy enough to act on a hunch because he believed that his God was big enough. Because he believed that the truth of God's word still stood. 
He believed that, that the truth of God's promise still applied. Do we believe that today? Do, do we believe that, that the God of the Bible is, is truly living? Do we believe further that he's living in us and that he will act on our behalf? That, that if, if we act as his people, that he will be our God? That, that if we pursue and follow him and try to be his representatives in the world, that he will make us a shining light in the city, that he, he will bring about restoration in our community, in our homes, in our world? Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is moving without having all of the details. Being sure that God will make a way when we get there. Without faith, there is no vision. And vision that matters moves us to pursue to the point where God's promise becomes a reality. It's seeing without actually seeing. It's believing without actually knowing. It's believing that God is bigger and that God will make a way. And it starts in our hearts. If it starts in our hearts, then vision should naturally move us to prayer. Prayer then should move us to action. Nehemiah didn't simply pray for God to restore his city. You know, we, we talked about that, that, that Nehemiah for four months is praying that, that God will move, praying that God will give him a time to act, praying that God will allow him to go to this city and do this thing, understanding that the oppression is there. Nehemiah has been praying that God would restore the city, but further he prayed, if you look back on chapter 1, he prayed that God would use him to restore the city. He didn't stop with simply praying about the vision, praying that God would bring something to be, praying that God would bring it to pass. No, he prayed that God would let him be a part of the action, that God would move him in such a way that he might be a part of the solution. Note, note the actions that we have so far from Nehemiah. He has this risky conversation with the king. He puts himself out there. He takes a thousand miles of arduous travel going from Susa to Jerusalem. He leaves the comfort and security of the best palaces that the Persian Empire had to offer for a broken down city on the edge of the empire surrounded by enemies. He puts himself at risk. That's a pretty strong, compelling vision that he has, wouldn't you say? That it moves him from a place of great comfort to a place of great risk. It's because Nehemiah didn't just see his prayers as a means to move the hand of God, but he saw his prayers as a means to move himself into the vision that God had for him. Let me ask these questions. What if the burning concerns in our hearts are actually God prompting us to follow him into a future we can't fully see? What if we actually are a part of the answer to the very prayers we're praying? I find that often to be the case. That if we really look at it and we really consider what we are praying, what we are asking God to do, that we are often part of the very solution that we are praying for God to provide. I can't tell you how often I've heard people ask requests and I've thought about the requests they're making and thought, you know, you have the ability in your hands right now to take care of that request. 
The most poignant example I have is I remember a time when I was working as a pastor in North Webster, Indiana. I went to this pastor's convocation thing. And so I go and I'm sitting in there and, and I'm the, the Baptist pastor working for the Methodist church. So I sat in my appro- appropriate position in the back corner and kind of watched what was going on. And as we're sitting there, this man from Basher Children's Home gets up and he talks about how God is moving and the awesome things that God is doing to restore the lives of young, young boys that are in trouble in, in northern Indiana and how, how God is, is taking these kids that are in trouble with the law and through the programs at Basher is, is allowing them to, to be rebuilt and reborn in a sense and be, being able to, to help them move from the potential of a lifetime of incarceration into being profitable, productive citizens in the world. Even going to the point where a lot of these young men were turning at the time to, to go into ministry. So we hear this incredible story. And the man at the end says, but we need your help. We're at capacity. And we have a building project that we've been working on. We have the plan. We've laid the foundation, but we don't have enough money. We don't have enough help for this project. And there was a man sitting in the crowd who just moments earlier, earlier as we were taking prayer requests said, I just want to thank God this morning because God has given us a windfall of finances at our church. And we just recently received over $150,000. We don't know how we're going to use it yet. But we have it in the bank and we're really excited about the money that God keeps providing. And we know there's a big future that God's calling us to and some big things that, that we need to do. So the, the man from Basher finishes his, his presentation and that very man says, we're going to pray that God provides you the same kind of financial gift that he's provided us. Not to be rude, but I sat there and was thinking in the background, you're an idiot. Like, how dare you? You're sitting there in your very hands. You just told God and everybody that you, like, what was clear to me was, was, was not clear to him. God had provided him the very means to, in that moment, be the answer to that prayer, and he could not see it. You know, if I'm, if I'm honest, I know that there are times where I've done the same thing. I'll, I'll go a step further. I know of times where, where there has been situations where I knew in my heart that I could provide the answer for that prayer request. But it was easier for me to say, I'll pray that God provides you the answer to that. It was less of a risk to me. It hurt me less. It cost me less. But I wonder how often God has placed a vision in the hearts of his people And we were just content to pray for a solution. When it was God's desire all along that we be the solution. Vision starts in the heart. The, the understanding of the needs and the burning in our hearts that something needs to be done for this. I can't handle this anymore. This can't continue this way. That is God moving in our hearts saying something needs to be done. And I would say to you this morning that if God is burning that in our hearts today, and, and there are many of us saying the same things, that that isn't simply a we need to pray for it thing, but we need to pray that God would open up the avenues that we are to go down to make a difference in our world. Vision starts in the heart. 
but it's meant to move to the hands. We see Nehemiah as he moves and makes his way to Jerusalem and and he gets there and so far he says that he hasn't told anyone about the vision yet. I think the reason for that is vision needs definition. Sometimes it just starts with a broad idea, but we really need to to narrow the field a little bit and know what what we're supposed to do in the midst of that. We need to be able to give a clearer picture as, as to what the expectations and what the true need of the situation is. Vision needs definition. So Nehemiah begins cre- creating and crafting a plan for the execution of his vision. God has placed it on his heart to restore the walls of Jerusalem, to rebuild the gates. He's already got supplies, but he doesn't exactly know what needs to be done first. So verse 13 tells us that he begins by inspecting the outline of the wall. He, he, he begins outlining his vision. Now he goes from what's simply in his heart to, be, to now seeing it with his eyes so that he might mobilize people to do it. The, the New Testament tells us that where it says that by night he went through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dungate, examining the walls. That word examining or inspecting, as it might be in, in, your, in your translation, commentaries note that the word used in this place in other translations and other places means to hope or expect. He wants to know what he can expect or hope to accomplish. He wants to see where that hope and reality touch together. He crafts a plan. And what informed Nehemiah's vision at this point, point was a vision of what could be. It's interesting that, that Nehemiah doesn't check out the whole wall. As you, as you read and look, it tells very specific parts of the wall that Nehemiah looks at. And according to scholars, the first portion of the wall that Nehemiah surveys was the part meant to protect the city's water supply. He's prioritizing what needs to be done when, based on what had been done before. That's interesting to me, that Nehemiah doesn't just set out and build a new wall. Nehemiah doesn't just go and and create and craft this totally new thing. He goes and he begins by understanding what was there in the first place. What was it that had worked, more or less, for hundreds of years before he stepped into the picture? Yes, the wall was torn down, but if you look at the history, it took quite a while for them to get through that wall. So Nehemiah examines, he inspects what was there. He's trying to figure out where the problems are going to be, where the potential is, and what needs to be the priority for the vision. In order for a vision to be viable, we have to be realistic about what we have to work with. We have to prioritize where we're going to work first, what we're going to do first, what we have to work against, and what we hope to see come to be. But he has this vision, and now he's looking at how he can make this vision reality. A clear vision of what was can often provide a firm foundation upon which to build the vision of what will be. I think that's true today. I think, I think we make a mistake if we go one of two ways. Sometimes in the church, we make a mistake by consistently looking back and saying, if only we could become that again. 
If only we could come back and, and, and hit the 1950s again, the golden age of the church. It used to drive me nuts in, in a previous church. A pastor constantly would say that. Oh, I just wish that for one week I could be a pastor in 1950. It was such a great time. People, people had it in their hearts that they were supposed to be at church. It was such a good thing, and all the churches were full, and what a wonderful time it would have been to work. And I found myself often saying, but you can never go back there again. It is never going to be 1950 again. As great as that was, we can't have that again. That time has passed. But on the other hand, you have people that are constantly looking to the future and saying, if only I had the resources that will be here in this day, if only I could get up here to this far place in the future. And it's good to understand that, but if we live too much in the past and too, or too much in the future, we lose the ability to see what can be done in the present. We need to understand both. And a clear vision of what was can provide a firm foundation upon which to build the vision of what will be. So one of the things, what we were as First Baptist Church in Seymour is part of what brought me here in the first place. I did, I did quite a bit of research trying to understand who this church was and what was it that made this church tick in the past to understand whether or not I thought I was going to be compatible to move in the future. Here are a few things that used to be or were true of us in the past. In 1937, First Baptist Church was used as an emergency hospital slash shelter for approximately 125 people displaced from their homes in Jefferson due to the flood. They were put in boxcars and sent up here that, that we could take care of them in our facility. A bunch of muddy, dirty, wet people were sent up here to be cared for in our facility for a period of time. During World War II, First Baptist Church created a hospitality center to care for servicemen stationed at Freeman Field. In 1988, First Baptist Church opened its doors to the students and staff of Emerson Elementary, a public elementary school here in our community, while their building was being renovated and remodeled. From 2001 to 2002, First Baptist Church hosted Trinity Lutheran High School as their building was being built we have a history of being in the community and for the community that goes back generations our vision has been in the past that we would make a difference that we would be a church that is in the community for the community my vision is not that we create a new church here but that the church remembers who we were and do a new thing in the now. That we would stop seeing our walls as something to protect us from the wicked outside, but see this is a place where we could bring people to bring hope and healing and restoration. Our vision is that we would rebuild the wall. That we would be First Baptist Church for Seymour, once again, that we would be that city on a hill, a shining light in the community. Vision starts in the heart, but vision needs definition. What is it that we're trying to do? Once it has definition, vision is meant to be shared. We see that in verses 17 and 18. Nehemiah finally gets his idea of what needs to be done first, and he has a plan to move forward into that. 
and he shares the vision with the people. It says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Notice that what starts with me eventually grows to we. Nehemiah starts in, back with the king, and, and he's talking about the shame of his people, and it's something that he personally owns. It is not something that is just their problem. It is his problem. And then once he gets there, he goes around by himself, and Nehemiah the individual understands what's going on. But Nehemiah the individual can only do so much. Eventually, what starts with me, the individual, must move to we, the corporate body. None of us can do it alone. Only Nehemiah knew the vision to start with, but the vision was too big for him to accomplish alone. And we can note that there, from verse 12 to verse 17, it shifts from the first person singular to the first person plural. He transitions from me to we. We must see the problem. Nehemiah starts by telling them, see the trouble that we are in. We will no longer be in disgrace. The word trouble there actually means evil or danger. See the danger that stands against us. Evil has come against them. And their task then is to overcome the evil that has come against them. That is the task of the people of God down through the ages. To overcome evil with good. This isn't anything new. It's so interesting to me that as we look throughout the Bible at the commands and the vision that God brings to his people, it often comes back to the same themes. And the theme of the people of God being the hand of God, the, the means of God to bring about good in the midst and the face of evil is something that spans the entirety of the Bible from the fall to the second coming. We collectively must see the problem. We must see the evil that has come against us. We must see the shame that is on us and our God. We must understand that God has called us to work for restoration. It's not necessarily that the shame is ours because there's something that's wrong in our church, but there's certainly something wrong in our community. There is shame. There is evil in our community that needs overcome. There are problems that need to be addressed. There are places that, that the light of Christ needs to shine and that His presence needs to be made known. To the people of God, it's not enough for us simply to acknowledge the problem. We are called to bring about restoration, to overcome the destruction and devastation by making pre God's presence known through our efforts for the gospel in our community. We must play our part. Let us rebuild the wall. Nehemiah offers an invitation for the people of God to join him in the work of God to accomplish the vision from God. But we have to accept the invitation. We have to decide that the risk is worth the reward. We have to determine that we will join in with what God is doing. That's something that I've said since the very first time that I stepped foot on the stage, that what I wanted us to be, this is, no, this is nothing new. What I'm telling you is what I've been telling you since that first December that I stepped foot on this stage, that what I want us to do is to look into the world and see where God is moving and join him in that movement. 
Will we accept the invitation? God has been faithful to provide in the past, and he will be faithful to provide in the future if we'll follow him and pursue the vision he has for us. We won't always have all of the details ironed out at the start. But we can be sure that the God who called us will make a way. Sometimes you have to act with the details you have right now and trust that God will give you the rest of the details as you go. You see that in the life of Nehemiah, and the truth is I've, expect, I've experienced that in my own life. When Robin and I first got married, we decided... Um, that we needed to make the move to West Virginia. It was too expensive to attend Appalachian, or to ex- attend Grace College. So we decided to move to West Virginia. And, and at the time, we had next to no money. I mean, we had a few thousand dollars, and let's be really honest, she had a few thousand dollars. So we got married, and we're looking at the cost of going to Grace and, and the cost of going to Appalachian Bible College in West Virginia and realizing that our family and friends were in Indiana, and we didn't have anybody in West Virginia. We still did, we knew God was calling us to go to Appalachian Bible College. Her dad was not happy with me. We had, shall we say, a loud conversation at their kitchen table shortly before Robin and I were even married. And her father being a very wise man financially, said, why would you do this? You need to stay here and work until you have the money and then go. That's how God's going to provide. You, you have faith that God's going to provide, but you do the work here and then you go. And, I, and we said, no, where God is calling us to go here and whether God will provide if we go. And so we did. We moved to West Virginia with just a few thousand dollars. Couldn't find jobs. But you know what was interesting is that every time that our checking account got to a point where it was almost at zero, a card would come in the mail that would have some money in it or a check. For two years, we lived in West Virginia, in Beckley, with no family, no friends, and very little income. You know what happened is by the time we graduated from Appalachian Bible College, we actually had more money in the bank account than when we started. God provided, and he provided beyond what we even needed. Sometimes we do need to step out in faith and follow God into the unknown with the the limited knowledge that we have, knowing that he has been faithful in the past, and he will provide for us in the future if we faithfully follow him into the vision he has for us. We need to be careful as we follow because there will be those that stand against us sometimes from within our own number and sometimes from without. But as we noted last week, opposition will follow where God moves. So we need to be careful. Don't allow those who can't see to deter you from what you can. Don't allow those who can't see to deter you from what you can. There will always be opposition. There will always be those that say we can't and this is why. We shouldn't and this is why. Once again, sometimes the opposition is from the outside. We see two different people that are mentioned here. There are actually three that are given. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab. What's interesting is that scholars say that Tobiah is a Hebrew name. Tobiah is, is one that, at least in some regard, has... Hebrew lineage. 
He, has, he does have claim, but he's standing against it and saying, why are you trying to do this? Why are you rebelling against the king? Why are you doing this thing? He has something to lose in this. So he stands against what God is trying to do through his people. And note that the threat they give is, are you rebelling against the king? Two greatest weapons that the enemy has to use against us are fear and apathy. To be afraid that we'll look foolish. To be afraid that we won't have enough to do what God has called us to do. To be afraid that that we're not skilled enough. To be afraid of the opposition that's sure to come. Fear is a powerful motivator. And fear often motivates us to immobilize and stay stationary. Fear that they would be in trouble. Are you rebelling against the king? You're going to be in deep trouble. King's going to come. He destroyed the wall once. He's going to come back again. And that leads to apathy. Just sitting and waiting and hoping that something happens. The God who created the universe is certainly capable of helping his people build his kingdom in this city. I know that there are reasons to fear. There, there, there are anxieties in my own heart about stepping outside of what has always been done. Believe it or not, I don't love change. I, I know that many of you struggle to hear that. You think you would be, think that I am I'm big about the change agent and drive. I, I am most naturally predisposed to going along to get along. That's truly how I feel in my heart. It takes a lot of work for me to push against people, to, to push out there and try. Now, I want to see resolution, so I, I'll go at conflict. But when I know that my next step is going to cause the conflict, it gives me pause. But here's the truth this morning. I have a vision for what God can and will do in this community. I can see the trouble and shame that is in Seymour, Indiana. I see the hurt. And I believe with all my heart, there is a burning in my heart. I am compelled to move because I know that the only true hope of restoration, the only true hope of finding hope and a future is Jesus Christ and His Gospel. And someone's got to do it. So it might as well be me. Why not us? My call to you as First Baptist Church is not that we do some extraordinary thing that is beyond what you've done before. As a matter of fact, I'm just calling you to become and to do what you've done in the past. To follow the path of those that, that went before us had set out. To be a missional people here in this community and beyond. That we wouldn't be content to sit back and pray in the safety of our seats, but that we would be willing to go out and however we can, get our hands in the mud, get our hands dirty, that we would be the vessels that would carry the compassion and grace of Jesus Christ into the world. Vision starts in the heart. It needs definition, but it needs those that are willing to pursue it. Are we willing to step out into the unknown and see God move? I'm going. 
and I hope you'll come with me. We need to rebuild the walls and the place of God's presence in this community. Father God, I pray that you would move, up, move us, Lord. I pray that you would stir in our spirits in a way that we can't ignore. God, I pray that you would provide us with a compelling vision of what could and should be. I pray that you would show us the problems, but Lord, that we wouldn't be content with seeing the problems, that you would show us how we might be the solutions. God, burn in our hearts with the fire of your gospel. Open avenues and paths that we might walk to take your vision and make it a reality here in Seymour and beyond. God, we pray that you would bring restoration, that you would bring life in the midst of death, that you would bring hope in the midst of hopelessness, that you would bring hope in the midst of despair. God, that you would restore and renew this city through our efforts. Give us the strength to follow you where you might lead. Help us to see your vision and pursue it. In Jesus' name, amen.